0: We'll be reading this morning from uh, the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 6 through 14, the Gospel according to John 1, 6 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, this is the second Lord's Day in the month of December. And this month we are focusing our attention on the idea of Emmanuel, God, God with us we're taking our focus from the first chapter of matthew which contains a a narrative of the birth of christ and it says this so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the lord through the prophet saying behold a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name emmanuel which is translated god with us And so, all month, we're exploring this uh, idea of Emmanuel and what does it mean that God is with us? Uh, What does it accomplish for God to be with us? Last Lord's Day, we focused on the first word in that phrase that, that Christ is God with us. And this morning, our focus is on the fact that He is God with us. Our Doctrine this morning is simply this, that Christ, in taking to himself a human nature, became fully man. Last week, we uh, focused on the fact that he is fully God, and this morning, the fact that he is fully man. And so if we were to put this in terms similar to what we did last week, I would say that Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, because he is not only truly God, but he is truly man of a reasonable soul and body in all things, like unto us, only without sin. And I'm borrowing language there from the ancient creeds and confessions of the church. But in other words, this morning we're going to be talking about the incarnation, God with flesh, uh, the joining of the human nature to the person of the Son, the second person of the eternal trinity Last week, we looked briefly at the book of Isaiah and the promise of the virgin birth, the promise of a son who would come from the line of David, who would sit on the throne and rule and reign forever. And we identified that son as Jesus, the Christ, the the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And then we saw in the first five verses of John chapter 1 that Jesus is fully God that he is of the very same essence as God the Father and God the Spirit. This morning, we'll see that he is also fully man, of the same sort of flesh that we have. Now, there's a distinction there that is important. We are all humans with the same sort of flesh, but not the same flesh. right? We, we all have individual bodies. We are like unto one another, but we do not possess the same exact essence. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 39 says, there is one kind of flesh of men. So one kind of flesh, but not one flesh. We all have the same type of physical body, but not the same body. And so we acknowledge that when Christ came and took to himself a human nature, including a body, that he was made like unto us. Uh, We acknowledge that he he possessed a full human nature, but it was uniquely his. He's not one with us in the same way that he is one with the Father. As to his divinity, he is of the very same essence as the Father. As to his humanity, he is of the same sort of essence as humans. This is an important distinction. He is like us according to the flesh. He is God according to his divinity. He's not just like God. He is God of the very same divine essence. And we saw in verses 1 through 5 that that he is God, very God of very God, truly God, the eternal word of God, the creator of God of all things. And now, uh, as John continues to write, we see in verse 6 that God sent a man named John, not the author of the gospel, but he's speaking here of John the Baptist, and we're told in verse 6 that this John was a man, that he was human. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, he was sent to be a witness, a testimony to Christ says in verse 7, this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. And so this man, John, was sent to be a witness or a testimony to the light. And we saw in verses 4 and 5 that the light is the eternal word, the Son that we identified as Christ. Well, then in verse 8, we're told explicitly that John is not that light. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, this is an important train of thought to follow from verse 6 through verse 8 because it opens up the possibility that this eternal word, this this light that we spoke of, who is God, could also be a man. The fact that, that the author of this gospel, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, has to clarify that John the Baptist is not the light gives us a hint that it is, there's a possibility here that the eternal God could also take on human flesh. Well, then in verse 9, we're told that the light was coming into the world. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, notice that John makes the point of saying that Jesus is the true light. Why add that modifier? Why specify that he is the true light unless there is something to distinguish the true light from? False light? How how does that work? How can you have false light? Light is either light or it isn't. But in this case, we're not talking about physical light. We're talking about spiritual light, a spiritual reality that enlightens our understanding, that gives us spiritual life. Remember, the light and the life are, are tied together So false light, spiritually, would be that which claims to give light, but in actuality doesn't. Now, to discern the difference between true light and false light, we need to understand two things. What is the source of true light, and what is the purpose of true light? And once we understand those two things, then we can discern true light from false light by discerning where this light is Coming from and what it is aiming to do or to accomplish. So let's look and see if we can figure out what is the source of true light. Look back at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him, that is, in the eternal word, in God, the Son, that the life that is in him is the light of men. The source of this true light is the life of God in Christ Jesus. The true light which enlightens men is the life of God which dwelt in the fullness of Christ. The word become flesh. It says in James 1:17: every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the source of light is God himself, spiritual enlightenment, spiritual life comes to us from God in Christ Jesus. So the next question is, what is the aim of this spiritual light? Why did Jesus come? What is he hoping to accomplish? Well, look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So so the aim of, of Christ coming into the world as this spiritual light from God to men, the purpose of it was that we might become children of God. We spoke about this last week and and I quoted 1 Peter 3.18 that tells us that his purpose is to bring us to God. That is why Christ came. So the source of the light is God and his purpose in giving us this spiritual light is to lead us to himself. That seems straightforward enough. But now as we consider those two truths about the true light, we're going to need them as we discuss the distinction between true light and false light. But we need to deal with a couple other things. First, look back at verse 9 again. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, it says that Christ, the true light, gives light or enlightens everyone, every man. But not all men are spiritually enlightened. That much is obvious from the next two verses, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So John is not teaching universalism here in verse nine, uh, that everyone is saved, but he is saying that in some way, Jesus, God coming in the flesh, gives light to everyone, but people respond differently to that light. Jesus uh, talks about this same thing in chapter 3 verses 19 through 21. This is Christ speaking uh, to Nicodemus and he says this, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So there is a sense in which God coming in the flesh, in the person of Christ, gives light to every man. The light of Christ shines on all of humanity so that our sin is exposed. You can't come to Jesus and walk in his light and still be hiding in the darkness of sin. The closer you get to Jesus, the more your sins are exposed and made visible to you. This is why the Apostle Paul begins his ministry saying that he is the least of the Apostles. And then, near the end of his lifetime, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. The closer he grew to Christ over the course of his life, the more he was aware of his sin. It was exposed in the light of the truth of Christ. And it humbled him, it put him in awe of his Savior. And that is what uh, the light of Christ in our lives is to do for us as well. So. What John has said so far is that Jesus is the true light, the genuine light, and that he is coming into the world, and that by coming into the world, he is exposing all men to light in such a way that there is no place to hide. You have to deal with Jesus. You have to respond. Now look at verse 9 once more. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So the true light, which leaves no place to hide, but exposes everyone, is coming into the world. Now, this is significance. It means that before his coming, the true light, in some sense, was not present in the world. That's significant. If we think about the picture that is presented to us of the new heavens and the new earth in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, Chapter 21 verse 23 says, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. So here uh, we have this picture of God dwelling with his people in the new heavens and the new earth and his presence, his, God's very presence with his people provides light for them. That's the end of the story. Well, what about the beginning of the story? Well, if we go back to Genesis, uh, this is after the fall, but it still gives us a clue. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve in the garden knew the presence of God with them. God was there walking with them in the garden. They had an experience that was similar to what's described for us in Revelation 21. God was with them. They had the true light of his presence with them. And what happened? Well, God had created the man and the woman. He put them in the garden. He gave them jobs to do. He visited them. He walked with them. They had the light of his presence with them. And he gave them one rule. Don't eat from this one tree that's in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve, even though they enjoyed the light of God's presence with them, they chose not to walk in that light, not to trust him, but to rebel against him. And this rebellion, which is called sin, caused them to die spiritually. That's what God had said would happen. Their sin severed them. That's what death is, to be cut off. It severed them from the presence of God so that they were kicked out of the garden. This is the death that God spoke of. Deprived of life and the light of his presence, mankind fell into spiritual darkness. So that is why the true light was coming into the world, because the world had become a place of spiritual darkness. So what is the distinction then between true and false light? Well, if we think about that story in Genesis, when Satan tempted Eve, what was he tempting her with? For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He tempted her with false light. He tempted her with enlightenment. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be enlightened. How do we know this was false light? Well, it didn't have Christ as its source and it didn't have as its aim to bring us to God. What Satan promised Eve was that she could become her own source of light, apart from God, independent of God. When he said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, he was promising her knowledge, enlightenment. Up to this point, Eve had known nothing but good in her life, but all of it came from God. She was entirely dependent upon God for every good thing But Satan has promised her you won't have to depend on God anymore. You can be enlightened apart from God. He promised her a light within herself rather than a light that comes from the presence of God. Rather than a light that leads her to God, he promised her a light that would give her independence from God. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And that's just what he was doing in the garden as he deceived Eve. He presented her with false light, a light that didn't come from God and didn't lead her to God. It led her away from God. Now, think about every other religion in the world, including many that claim to be Christian, but they'll tell you to look within yourself for enlightenment, to look inside, to search your heart and find enlightenment. Visit any bookstore. Almost all of them will have a self-help section, and they're large sections in the bookstore, self-help. Some of them will even have Christian self-help books, which is an obvious contradiction. Right, The very idea that we are Christians is that we can't help ourselves. We are dependent upon Christ. That's why we're called Christians. The idea of Christian self-help is ridiculous. It's false light. But these lies work because God created us in his image meant to reflect the light of his glory with that fall into the darkness of sin, that the mirror got shattered, broken, and fragmented. The image is all distorted. We can only see it in part. It's like looking in a broken mirror. You get some idea of the real thing, but it's not an accurate representation. That's what happened in our world. The mirror is shattered. The light is reflected and scattered and splintered. Occasionally throughout human history, There is a flash of the beauty of God's glory in humanity reflected by mankind. But for the most part, we're in darkness. But we're not left without hope. God has promised that he would restore light and life to mankind, that he would mend our broken relationship with himself. The Psalms and the prophets make repeated references to this imagery of light. The Psalms associate light with God's attention to his people. Psalm 4, verse 6, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The prophet Isaiah looks forward to the coming of Christ, and he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So the apostles Here in John is telling us that with the coming of Jesus in the flesh, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled because the true light was coming into the world. How did he come into the world? Well, John tells us in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we come to this verse knowing that the Word here, the the Logos, is the eternal God. We saw that last week. But now we're told that he became flesh or was made flesh. And so we have to ask, how could the eternal, immutable, unchanging God become anything? If he becomes anything, he's not God. God is... Fully actualized as God. He has no potential to become anything else. He's perfect. If he were to change, it would not be for the better. It would be for the worse. So what does it mean to say that the Word became flesh? It can't mean that God underwent change, for then he wouldn't be God. So when it says that he became flesh, it does not mean, it cannot mean that there was some sort of change in God, that there was a change from one nature into another. The Son did not cease to be God and begin to be man. It can't mean that the two natures, divine and human, were combined in Christ to form something new, some new sort of nature, a third sort of nature, part human and part divine. The early church dealt with this subject at the Council of Chalcedon in in 451 A.D., and they produced a creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and it says in part that Christ exists in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the unity, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, His Godhead remains unchanged, His humanity remains purely human. The two are not combined to make a third sort of thing. They're not blended together. They're not to be confused. They each remain what they are, purely very God of very God, very man of very man. But they are inseparably joined together in the unity of the person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was not a human person who was possessed by the second person. Person of the Trinity. He is the second person of the Trinity who took to himself a human nature. One person, the Son, with two natures, the divine and the human. The technical term for this is the hypostatic union, it comes from the Greek. Kevin DeYoung explains the, the four negative terms here in the Chalcedonian Creed that describe this union of Christ's two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. He says, without confusion, the Lord Jesus Christ is not what you get when you mix blue and yellow together and end up with green. He is not a third thing, the result of mixing the divine and the human nature. Without change, in assuming human flesh, the Logos did not cease to be what he had always been. The incarnation affected no substantial change in the divine Son. Without division, the two natures of Christ do not represent a split in the divine person. Jesus Christ is not half God and half man. Without separation, the union of the human and the divine in the person of Jesus Christ is a real organic union, not simply a moral sympathy or a relational partnership. Christ is one person with two distinct natures But we're still left asking, even if we can sort of begin to wrap our minds around that, why is it important? Why did God do this? Why take on a human nature? Why did the Word become flesh? Well, as we see in the story of the garden with Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what happened? Almost immediately, at, at his first interaction with them, what does God do? He clothes them with skins, which means an animal died. Its blood was shed in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. In the second generation of humanity, we see Abel offering the sacrifice of the firstborn of his flock, an animal sacrifice, blood shed to provide a covering for sin. Throughout Genesis, we see the patriarchs offering animal sacrifices to God. Then comes the Exodus and the story of the Passover. A lamb is slain, its blood is painted on the doorposts, and the angel of death, the wrath of God, passes over those who are in the house because they are covered in the blood of the lamb. Then comes the sacrificial system of Leviticus, spelling out in detail which animals are to be sacrificed under which circumstances. And the priesthood offer these animals sacrifices continuously throughout the Old Testament. But then comes Christ, the Lamb of God, who is sacrificed on the cross. And in Hebrews, we're told, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they, wouldn't, they would they not have ceased to be offered. The animal sacrifices could not perfect the worshipers. If it did, they would have been done. They wouldn't have to offer them continually. He says the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. So if the animal sacrifices could actually take away sin for the worshiper, then their sin would be gone. They would not have to continually offer the sacrifices. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was humans who sinned. Not bulls and goats and lambs. A human sin requires the death of a human. The purpose of the sacrificial system of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament wasn't to atone for sin, but to remind the worshipers of their sin. The law, Hebrews says, was but a shadow of the good things to come. In other words, the law was pointing forward to Christ. Christ is the substance. The shadow, the law was but a shadow. The the sacrifices were meant to point our way forward to Christ. Hebrews then continues. This is in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God previously saying sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that is the animal sacrifices, that he may establish the second, Christ doing the will of God. Then Hebrews concludes, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It was only the sacrifice of a perfect, sinless human that would be able to atone for the sins of humans. And since all mankind had fallen into sin and inherited a sin nature from Adam, it was necessary that God himself would take unto himself a human, a sinless human nature, live a sinless human life and then die a sinless death. In so doing, he offered himself as a substitute for sinners. He didn't deserve death. It would have been unjust for him to die, but he took our sins upon himself so that his death was the punishment for our sins. Because he was sinless, though, death was unable to hold him, and so he was raised from the dead by the power of God and offers this new life to all of those who trust in his sacrificial work. God had to come into the world in human flesh in order to redeem us from the curse of our own sins. This is why he was born, so that he could die as a sacrifice. In Hebrews 2, which we've read this morning already, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil "'and release those who through fear of death "'were all their lifetime subject to bondage. "'For indeed, he does not give aid to angels. "'Christ didn't come as an angel. "'He came in the flesh as a man. "'He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. "'Therefore, in all things, "'he had to be made like his brethren, "'that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest "'in things pertaining to God, "'to make propitiation for the sins of the people.'" See, the incarnation is important. God becoming flesh is important because it had to be a sinless human who would die for sins in order to save sinners. And since there were no sinless humans, God had to do it himself. His birth as a baby was a means to that end. It's important that he was born of a virgin, did not inherit a sin nature from Adam. But the ultimate fact of his incarnation, the most important fact of his incarnation, is his perfect life, death, and resurrection. In fact, his resurrection is why we worship on Sunday, the day of his resurrection from the death, the first day of the week. We don't even know what day of the week he was born on. It doesn't matter. One day in seven, every week, we celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the resurrection. The word became flesh. He took unto himself a human nature in order to redeem people from their sins. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. He is truly God and truly man with a reasonable body and soul, the creeds and confessions say. In other words, he he possessed an entire human nature, a body, a human mind, human will, human emotions, and all things made like unto us, yet without sin. Verse 14 of John 1 goes on to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. It's kind of easy to skip over that phrase if we're reading, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we keep reading. But this is important to say that he dwelt among us. It means that he lived in the flesh. He didn't just come in the flesh and die the next day. He came as a baby and he lived for 30 years and then began his ministry for three years and then died at the age of 33. Jesus didn't just come and and hang out. As a person, he came in order to do something very specific. His dwelling among us is important. The verse goes on to tell us about his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It wasn't the glory of a man that dwelt with us. It was the glory of God that dwelt with us in human form. And here's why we shouldn't skip over this phrase too quickly. When it says that he dwelt among us, all of our English translations render this as dwell or dwelt. But there is an allusion here to the tabernacle of the Old Testament, that the word here is the the verb form of the Greek word for tabernacle. The New American Standard has a footnote that indicates this and actually says tabernacled among us. But it's the only English translation that kind of gives us a clue to the allusion that John is, is using here. But we can see it if we look again at Revelation 21, at the end of the story when, when God dwells with man in the new heavens and the new earth, it says this in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. So there's the noun verb. The noun form of the word, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. There's the verb form of the same word and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will tabernacle with them. When we begin to see that connection between the tabernacle and the idea of God dwelling with his people, we can begin to see the significance of John chapter one, verse 14. Back in Exodus, when the tabernacle was first constructed and first set up, it tells us, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All through the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle when his presence descends on it. And if you read the first few chapters of Numbers, you'll see that as Israel wanders in the wilderness, the tabernacle was at the center of the nation and the 12 tribes are camped around it. God's presence in the tabernacle was in the center of his people. He dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. This is where his presence and his glory was made known to his people. So when John says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth he's using tabernacle language from the old testament as john gill says in his commentary this is an allusion to the tabernacle which was a type of christ's human nature The model of the tabernacle was of God and not of man. It was coarse without, and he he means on the exterior, the tabernacle looked like a a big tent that was set up. It was rough, it was man-made on the outside, but full of holy things within. Here God dwelt, granted his presence, and his glory was seen. Here the sacrifices were brought, offered, and accepted. So too the human nature of Christ was God's pitching as in pitching a tent and not man's and though it looked mean without in other words it looked like a human body scripture even tells us that he he was rugged he he wasn't handsome to look at he's a carpenter he's probably working outside had calluses on his hands it looked mean without but the fullness of the godhead dwelt in it as full as the fullness as well as the fullness of grace and truth Christ is the fulfillment of this promise of Emmanuel, God with us, because he is truly God and he is truly man. And just as the tabernacle of the old covenant couldn't contain all of God, but it was the place where his presence and his glory were particularly on display for Israel to see, so too the human nature of Christ could not contain the eternal, omnipresent God. God but it was the means that God used to make his presence and his glory particularly visible for mankind. God took to himself human flesh. He dwelt among us. He camped or tabernacled in the midst of his people. His glory was seen in the person and work of Christ. And this means that Christ's earthly life had great significance, not just his birth and his death, but everything in between. He dwelt in the flesh. He lived a full human life in perfect obedience to God's law, which is something we could never do. What what is the result of that? Why did he need to do that? Well, it resulted in a righteousness that Christ could bestow on those who trusted in him. This is a righteousness that the scriptures say is imputed or accounted to us. Scripture is clear that when we are justified, we are justified by His righteousness given to us as a free gift. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says, "...through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous." So we can conclude from this verse that sin came by disobedience, righteousness comes by obedience. But how is Christ's righteousness earned by his life dwelling in the flesh, how is that given to us? How can he give away his righteousness to others? Well, we've already said that Christ has two natures in one person. John Bunyan explains in a passage near the end of Pilgrim's Progress that Christ actually possesses four righteousnesses. He has uh, the righteousness that is essential to each of those two natures. You can't separate the righteousness from the nature, or the nature would no longer be what it was. Christ has a righteousness that is inherently his because he is God. He is righteous, He can't give us that righteousness or he would part with his Godhead. He has a righteousness that is inherent to his perfect human nature. He was made in the same way that Adam was made in the garden, without sin. Perfectly righteous human nature. He can't give us that righteousness or he would part with the purity and the perfection of his human nature. It would be impossible for the perfect Son of God, the eternal Word of God, to be united perfectly to a sinful human nature. So he can't part with the the righteousness inherent to his human nature. But he also has a righteousness that is inherent to the union of those two natures in his person. This is the righteousness that affords him the authority to be the mediator of the new covenant, which is a, a subject we're going to look at next week. But he can't give us this righteousness either, because this is the righteousness that gives him the authority to execute his office as mediator. But, Bunyan says, Christ has another righteousness, one that comes from his life lived in the flesh in obedience to the revealed will of God. It is this righteousness which is imputed to us for our salvation. His passive obedience and his death on the cross atones for our sins, but his active obedience to God's will in his incarnation, is the righteousness that is imputed to us, clothing us in righteousness before God. But all of Christ's righteousness works together for our good. It is his righteousness as a divine person that gives virtue to his obedience so that he is actually able to live a life in complete obedience to the Father. It is his righteousness of his perfect manhood that made his sacrifice acceptable. It had to be a perfect sacrifice to atone for sins. It is the righteousness of his office as mediator that gives him the authority to act on our behalf, to offer himself as a substitute for us. And as John Bunyan explains, the righteousness of his life lived in the flesh is ours by the design of God in the law Listen to what Bunyan says. This righteousness, since Christ Jesus the Lord has made himself under the law, must be given away. It must be given away. For the law not only binds him that is under it to do justly, but to use charity. Wherefore, he must or ought by the law, if he has two coats, to give one to him that has none. Now our Lord indeed has two coats, one for himself and one to spare. Therefore, he freely bestows upon those who have none. Christ has this righteousness because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by the law, he has to give that righteousness away to someone who is in need. And so he gives it to needy sinners who trust in him by faith. This is why it is so important that Christ came in the flesh and dwelt among us and lived a life as a human. He didn't just appear to be man. Right? It wasn't an illusion. He actually had a physical body, a human nature in its fullness. But he wasn't just a man. He was God with us, enabling him to live a life of perfect obedience in our place for our righteousness, and then to die a perfect death in our place for our atonement and then to conquer death as the mediator of a new covenant so that he might give us everlasting life. The incarnation, the word became flesh, is an incredible miracle of God's grace and his goodness to us. It is by the incarnation of Christ that we are made partakers of the everlasting inheritance with God in the new heavens. Those verses in Revelation that speak of the light of the Lamb and the presence of God dwelling in his people, those promises are for us because the word became flesh and dwelt among us to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray.